0: So there I was, sitting by the campfire, thinking about men of character with big hearts.
1: Yo, what's up everybody? This is J.J. Martinez. This is Big Jeff. And this is Beauty and the Beast Mode Podcast. Jeff, before we say the episode number, this is what I was thinking. I don't think that we should go ahead and say which episode it is, just in case we want to save it and put it out later. Does that make sense to you? So this is... This is episode number unknown. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Jeff, uh, it's been a while. Has it been a while?
0: It's been a while.
1: Like two weeks? Two weeks. Oh, we fell off again.
0: You had some stuff come up, right? I had some stuff come up. Your lovely daughter came to visit.
1: Ah, yeah. I had some. Yeah. I just, actually, that's true. That's true. My daughter came to visit me from Chicago. We talked about my daughter on the podcast a couple of times yeah. in good ways. Yeah. Yep. So she's here. She's actually with my folks right now in Daytona. Yeah. She's probably sleeping right now. You know, it's it's
0: summer. It's summertime.
1: It's her vacation. I get it. What about you, brother? What have you been up to?
0: Nothing. Family's home from New York and Ireland.
1: Uh, After several months,
0: they were uh, gone for three weeks and uh, my bachelor life is over. I did nothing that was crazy and wild whatsoever. And I was looking forward to the family coming back, actually. So did a bunch of stuff around the house, so the wife would be happy when she got home. Last minute, yes, don't judge. Um, laying mulch and doing this and pulling bushes and the whole bit. So that's it.
1: That's exciting.
0: It's not exciting <laughs> whatsoever. Like I think about years ago when I had, quote unquote, a life and was wild and crazy. Yeah.
1: Years ago land mulch was totally different.
0: Now, like, a, a, a marathon of Shark Tank gets me excited, so. But uh, enough of me and enough of you. We actually have a, a very special guest in the house. Very special. Beauty and the Beast Mode Mobile Headquarters. Uh, special guest, could you please introduce you? yourself? Wait. Mobile headquarters
1: or remote headquarters? Remote. Okay, I was just, you know. We're not in the car. But we're not
0: fact-checking. No. <laughs> so, uh, special guest, please introduce yourself, if you don't mind. Yeah, it's good to be with you guys. It's uh, Adam Silva coming to you from Beauty and the Beast Happy to be here. Woo! woo, woo. <laughs>
1: we have to do yeah. our own special effects because we don't have, like, soundboards and stuff. Understand. You mobile. understand? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, thanks for being here. Yeah. You know, when we first talked about doing a podcast um, and we talked about uh, bringing people on to interview and reasons why we wanted to have people on, you were at the very top of our list. So it's about time you got your
0: butt here. <laughs> so normally we start off and uh, we like to just let our listeners know uh, kind of where you started out. So if you don't mind, where were you born?
2: I was actually just answering this question uh, a couple of weeks ago talking to somebody and I referred to myself as a Portuguese kid from New Bedford and, uh, and that's it. You know, I'm, um, I'm more than just a Portuguese kid, obviously. There's some uh, German, English, Irish in there. And, uh, but I uh, come from fairly humble backgrounds in the streets of New Bedford. And, uh, but I'm also the son of a military guy. My father was a sergeant major in the United States Army. My mom was a stay-at-home mom for the most part. She did a little odd jobs here and there, but uh, I'm the oldest of four, and I've got a brother who's a cop, a sister who's a nurse, and another sister who's a teacher. Uh, so my parents did a heck of a job, at least with three-quarters of us, uh, <laughs> coming up with a family of service. And um, and I also happen to be, let's see, I'm the uncle to somewhere around 15 nieces and nephews. Wow. So, yeah, Jacksonville, Ponte Vedra, uh, Pennsylvania, and California, so... There's no such thing as an easy reservation with the Silva family because it's always normally a party of 20 or 24. So yeah, <laughs> that's kind of nice, yeah. though. Yeah, no, we're we've been blessed. 19 years in Jacksonville, and at one point or another, I've had my parents, my in-laws, uh, my brother and sisters. You know, all went to high school here locally at the beach, and you know, I'm the only transplant, if you will. Um, but it's great. I mean, we are blessed beyond measure when it comes to living in a society where most people don't have the luxury of being close to their you know immediate family. We've not only got that, but we've got it in spades. So yeah, we're very
0: lucky. That's awesome. So I was an only child, so I can't even think about, you know, growing up, I had the invisible friends yeah. and brothers and sisters. So always to me, like I had a close knit of friends growing up, so they were kind of like my family, yeah. you know? So how was it growing up with, three other siblings. Oh yeah.
2: So my dad's an only child and my mother's the oldest of two. So they got married. Um, I jokingly say I was at the wedding. I used to think it was nine months from September to May until I was like 30 years old, only to realize that that's about eight months. (laughs) So um, my parents started very young. Uh, I think my mom was 21 when I was born. And then every two years they had a kid. So it was me, my brother and my sister and my other sister. Um, and, you know, it, it was, you don't know it when you're living through it. And, you know, but I look back and realize how blessed I was. Um, to this day, my brother and sisters are my closest friends. You know, I love them dearly and their spouses, which, again, you want to talk about a blessing. Um, I love my, my sister-in-law, my brothers in law You know, like, I, you know, I can't even begin to tell you. I look at them as sister and brothers. Um, but growing up, the oldest of four with a father who's a sergeant major living on post enlisted housing uh, Mom stayed at home. You know, we learned that Tuesday night at the Sizzler was a good time to go eat. My mother didn't let us order soda because we couldn't afford it, so we drank water. Cheeseburgers were a luxury at McDonald's. <laughs> the hamburger, when it was a nickel, was a much better alternative. <laughs> yeah. um, so we learned early on the value of a dollar, and, or in that, those days, the value of a nickel, uh, and the value of hard work, um, which I think we'll talk about later when we talk about influences. Um, but it was, you know, it was great. I mean, it was great. I was blessed. You know, I had two parents that loved me and were together my entire childhood and um, you know, grandparents that were involved. And, and you know, uh, it was great. I, mean, I was a blessed child. No
1: question about it. You said you were the oldest? I'm the oldest. So what kind of responsibilities were falling on you as the oldest of that group?
2: I started babysitting at nine years old. And, you know, that was, you know, when for free. Yeah, I mean, when I was, when, when we were coming up again, you know, we, my parents, my mom would stay at home for the most part, but work part-time and both my parents were in the hotel business. So they would, uh, I learned early on seven to three, three to 11, 11 to seven. Those are the three shifts that at least my parents used to work. And so, you know, my, my dad was a touring musician in the Army field band. My mom stayed at home but worked some odd jobs, including the hotel. So, you know, she'd draw a 3 to 11 shift Sunday through Thursday. And you know, we didn't have money to pay for a babysitter, so I learned early on how to operate the microwave, make some macaroni and cheese, um, and take care of my brother and sisters. And if they were sitting in this chair, they'd probably tell you I wasn't the greatest babysitter in the world. But... You know we made it happen so probably could get arrested for some of the things we did when we were younger you know but now in you right. know, today's right. sheltered environment but but no it was cool you know it was um, and I always had a little brother who was right behind me so my brother Nate is two years younger than me but he's the real athlete in the family um, and he, he and I were you know whether we liked it or not we were attached at the hip and so You know, we we grew to love each other pretty deeply uh, as kids. And that was a huge
1: blessing. How would you describe yourself as a teenager, like high school years, maybe like 10th through 12th grade? Where was your mind at?
2: Arrogant and lost. Um, I thought that the, the sun rose and set on my ass and that the world revolved around me. And, you know, there's part of me that looks back on that and you think, well, at least you're not governed by fear. You know, at least I never felt like I was less than or couldn't do something. In many ways, that was driven by the chip on my shoulder rather than the confidence in my heart. But and I was a very arrogant kid uh, as, as a teenager um, and lost. You
1: know? why, why do you say there was a chip on your shoulder?
2: Uh, being the, the enlisted guy's kid, you know, competing with the officer's kids, um, playing soccer as a young kid, and, and playing against the kids that were brought up in the very affluent areas north of D.C., in Prince George's and Montgomery County. Uh, not being able to do things, you know, not having money. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the, my grandfather um, had a master's degree, but pretty much, the, other than that, I'm the first guy on my mother on my father's side to graduate from college. So there's a lot of chip on my shoulder stuff going on there. And then, you know, 1970s, early 80s, oldest child, you, you needed to learn how to defend yourself. <laughs> and you know, we lived on post for a good amount of time, and. Uh, You know, my grandmother used to refer to that as living in the projects. That's, you know, we didn't have it that tough. But um, there were a lot of kids running around, you know, with things to prove. And, you know, so it was a little bit of a chip on my shoulder to, you know, try to fit in and figure out what it meant you know to be a
0: man, if you will. At that age, when you were that age and having to watch your siblings and kind of expected to be the man, did you realize that back then? Did you think about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, because you, you, when you're when you're left in a home at nine years old with a seven, a five, and a three-year-old, you know, you, you know, it's not like I was mature enough to understand what that meant, but the enormity of that responsibility certainly shapes who you are. You know, as a young kid, um, I got my first job when I was ten years old, um, pulling weeds for cash at a hotel, you know, and sweeping up cigarette butts and you know dirt from the parking lot and mowing lawns and doing whatever else I could three dollars an hour cash I I don't know if they can come back and get the taxes on that (laughs) um you know so and then by the time I was 12 I was working for my dad at a restaurant in Little Italy in downtown Baltimore and bussing tables and washing pots and pans and you know making garlic bread with Miss Esther in the back you know in the kitchen and so you learn early and um I'll also tell you that that's that's governed a lot of how I'm fathering now and, and husbanding um you know, I, I, I saw the, my first heroin needle in someone's arm when I was 12 years old, you know, throwing the trash out in the back alley of Russo's Italian restaurant on Albemarle Street. And, you know, that, that stays with you for a while. And, you know, seeing some other nefarious uh, goings on in the, the, everything from the cooler to the back alley uh, to the cars that were being parked outside. So, um, you know, it, it all, all goes into shaping you. And so as a, as a father, I don't think we've coddled or shielded our kids from a tonne but we've also made decisions that don't put them in the same situations that I was in when I was 12. So um, we hold our kids accountable and we're tough on them. And there's a whole other way to parent them and make sure that they don't feel like the world, right? The sun rises and sets on their behind like, like I thought it did mine. Right.
0: Did you move around a lot or were you pretty much there in
2: mass? Yeah, we were lucky. Uh, And actually it was Maryland. Uh, My dad Uh, interesting story. So my dad joined the Army Reserves during Vietnam. Uh, It was either that or wait to get drafted. So he joined the local reserve unit, and uh, he was in combat demolitions, like, you know, light engineers type stuff, minesweeper stuff, Um, and uh, ended up, you know, serving his commitment, never got called up. They were never deployed. And then he ended up getting a job, a bunch of different odd jobs around New Bedford, where we're from, and I think the last job he had was roofing back with tar and the mop, you know, on the, on the, you know, sea, on the, the roofs <laughs> in Boston and, and Providence and whatnot. And he's like, man, this is, this is not cutting it. And there were three of us. I was four. Nate was two. Becky was newborn. And he's like, I got to get out of here. So he joined the Army again. But this time, and again, the reason I say it's an interesting story is think about the dic- dichotomy of going from sweeping for mines to he became a trumpet player. And so he went to the Armed Forces School of Music in Little Creek, Virginia. They extended him for about six months because the base commander needed him to play flag football uh, for the team. That was, very- was he a musician in high school? Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. So he was a trumpet player. And right. my dad would tell you this. He was uh, a guy who, who had a love-hate relationship with the trumpet at that time, uh, was given scholarships to go out to Kansas and at the university. Uh, and, and just said, no, thanks. Ended up going to Bridgewater State College in Massachusetts. That's where he met my mom, struggled, you know, Mm -hmm. about a couple times. And that's why he ended up roofing. Um, but no, he was, my father was a world-class trumpet player at one point. So he auditioned, got into the, uh, the military band program and then became the lead trumpet player for the army's jazz ambassadors, which is headquartered at Fort Meade, Maryland. So the gig is if you can play, you can stay. So for 11 years, you know, and when you, be, when you go into the band back then, you become an E6, a staff sergeant. But within four or five years, he became an E9. And so my dad, I was the kid, of a son of a sergeant major. And so we were lucky we never had to move. 11 years there, never had to move. But he wanted to advance himself. So he went into the colonel and said, look, I want to go to a warrant officer school. And the colonel said no, because they didn't want to lose him. He was the NCOIC of the band. He was a noncommissioned officer in charge. And uh, he said, look, if you don't let me go, I'm getting out. And the colonel basically said, you're bluffing. There's no way you're going to get out of the Army. You're a sergeant major. Nobody would get out of the Army as a sergeant major before you can retire. And within a few months, he put in his paperwork and came to Jacksonville, Florida, to help start the music program at UNF, the jazz program. Wow.
1: They have, helped me out, warrant officers that can be, let our band players? Like, that's the, mm-hmm. that's the job description?
2: Yeah. Wow. Now, again, I don't know what the structure is mm-hmm. today. Right and interestingly enough apparently there's a bill before congress to eliminate the military band programs uh, which which most people would say yeah it's a waste of money you'd be shocked yeah. at how much value the military bands uh, uh, you know uh, give to the to the all the armed forces uh, everything from what they do in dc to what they do out in the field um, the west point band which I was lucky enough to hear you know last week so uh, but yeah that's that's what my dad did they had a, a full slate of members of the band who were enlisted you, in his case, there was a chief warrant officer in charge, and that band was part of a bigger you know, band, the field band, which had a, I think uh, he had two lieutenants, colonel, uh, maybe full bird. I, I can't remember, but yeah, yeah.
0: So this greatly interests me because I played trumpet for probably about 13 years uh, as a kid. So you said that your dad put his papers in and just up and left started the music program at UNF Helped start it. Yeah. Help he start was, it. He
2: was probably one of the early hires, but he wasn't the founder.
0: So, was it like a concert band, marching band, a whole program that they created?
2: So at UNF back at the, in the day, there's a guy named Rich Madison, phenomenal guy, and Rich was a jazz euphonium player. Euphonium's like a mini tuba. And Rich uh, was an absolute freak with the horn. He was just unbelievable. He also happened to be a very uh, smart and, and very charismatic guy. And so he ended up meeting a benefactor down here in Jacksonville by the name of Ira Koger, who had a, an affinity for jazz music. And so they created the jazz program. Again, I may be getting the chronology wrong, but he was instrumental in creating the jazz program at UNF, which through the 80s and early 90s was one of the premier jazz uh, programs in the country right up there with North Texas and, and all their uh, the bands that they have up there. And so um, he recruited my dad to come down. And, you know, he was willing to wait until he got out, but when, that, when he decided to resign and just move on, you know, he's like, all right, let's go. Come on down. So he was there from 88 to 95, I think, 95, yeah, 95 or 96. And
0: um, so, yeah. That's wild. So... Growing up the way that you did is kind of like helping to raise your siblings, and you mentioned your dad in the army, and um, growing up during those times, was there anybody in particular that was a big influence in your life, or that you looked up to, and and kind of had a profound effect on the way that you looked at things, which kind of molded you into the future you?
2: Yeah, I think like anybody else, you know, I had a, a, a love-hate relationship with my parents. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, there was no real hate, but, you know, the pushing the envelope, envelope, growing, you know, stretching the boundaries, challenging, you know, that whole thing. And, and by the way, we talk about working in restaurants and not having my children do that, even though my daughter just recently had a short stint at a barbecue place. Um I never once told my son he was the man of the house. And I've been traveling for 20 years. but I never leave the house and say, you're the man of the house. It is too much responsibility to put on a young, young boy. Um, and also, again, this is my hindsight of 2020, but also that devalues the role of your wife. Because my wife doesn't need the man of the house. She wants the man of the house. She doesn't need him. And that's one of the things that people, somebody asked me years ago, what's the greatest business decision you've ever made? Because I've made plenty of bad ones. And I said, I picked the right woman. And he looked at me, he goes, no, really, what was the greatest business decision? I said, no, really, if you can pick the right woman and, and she's willing to allow you, you know, or you, you know, whatever, then that can hopefully give a foundation for everything else. And so anyway, that was a little tangent, but to answer the question.
1: That was a, that was a tangent. That was a knowledge bomb.
2: I've answered this question several times and, and it's a two part answer, but. The, the most profound impacts, uh, other than my parents and my mother, my mom, my father Bruce and my mother Linda. My dad still was. My mother died a couple years ago, which, again, changed my life in profound ways. But my parents, my vovoo, which is Portuguese for grandfather, um, Polivio Silva. They were too, too poor to give my middle name. So, um,
1: Polivio. Polivio.
2: You will I, never meet another
1: Polivio. I was just going to say, I want that name. Like, I want that <laughs> name, Polivio Martinez. That's pretty good. Yeah. I like that.
2: Well, I we gave it to my son as his middle name which of course he'll probably not like that. I just said that on the podcast. (laughs) Um, My grandfather and I are almost polar opposites in so many different ways. Um, He dropped out of, I think, the sixth or seventh grade, started smoking cigarettes, which back then was a big deal. You know, he was born in 1921. So in the early to mid-30s, he was, as he said, he was running the streets. And he used to run numbers for an illegal gambling, uh, you know, operation that was run by one of the mafia guys in New Bedford. Uh, he lived on the, the wrong side of the tracks. Um, his uh, father died when he was young. And my vavu used to share stories with us about laying in bed. When yeah. I mean, he shared a bed with his brother, Hector, who he said, he re- I reminded him of his brother, which was a huge compliment. But he told me a story of how one night he's laying in bed in the middle of winter. They shared a bed and they're under a couple of blankets. And all of a sudden he, he like smacks Hector. and He's like, Hector, stop messing around. And he thought that Hector was, like, touching his chest. But when he opened his eyes and looked up, he was looking in the face of a rat. And that's how tough they used to live. I mean, they had nothing. And so when I find myself complaining about my, you know, circumstances or whatever, I have nothing to complain about based on my, what my vavu went through. Um, but he also didn't help himself. So he dropped out of middle school, running the streets, smoking cigarettes, drinking, you know, hanging out, um, He ended up getting drafted. He was a private in the United States Army in field artillery, uh, initially in uh, machine guns, anti-aircraft machine guns. Then they moved him to, the, as he called them, the Tom Toms, the long, I think they were 90 millimeters. But uh, he moved to that, and um, he loved his time in the Army. He was a huge influence on me, mostly because of his work ethic. Um, He used to deliver ice cream, not in the ice cream trucks where the kids run up with a quarter, but like five- and three-gallon ice cream, Mm -hmm. like hard-packed homemade. He worked for a dairy that had these huge vats that used to make ice cream, and he would travel all over southeastern Massachusetts delivering fresh ice cream to restaurants and convenience stores. And so he used to take me to Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. We'd go down into the hull of a ship, and and he hated the water. He hated the water. In all the years he was alive, I don't think I ever saw him in shorts. I never saw him eat pizza or spaghetti, and I never saw him go into the pool of the ocean. And I think that had something to do with the transport uh, uh, ship that took him to World War II. Wow. But every Tuesday, he was delivering, you know, on a ferry boat to Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard. And so, um, I ended up working for him one summer for five dollars a week. And that money I used to use at the baseball field to buy myself, you know, sugary snacks. Um, but he it was a huge influence on me because he died basically penniless, and yet he was the richest man I know. And I, the the vision of my vavu that is forever seared into my memory is he was visiting one, we, you know, for I think it was a Christmas, and he was staying at my house or he was babysitting with my grandmother. I can't remember. And I walked out of a bedroom and I looked up because I used to work at, out of the house, and I looked at the couch, and my vavaw, that's the grandmother of the couple, my vavaw had her head on my vavu's shoulder, and they were watching a western. And they had been married at that point in time, like 55 years. And of all the time that I was around them, I saw my grandfather. And he wasn't perfect. You know, none of us are. But he loved my grandmother. And he treated her with respect. And, you know, like I read once in a book, I think every time he left the room, she felt better. Not because he was leaving, but because while they were in the same room, he made her feel better about herself. So... Uh, that was a huge, and you know, so my my father, my grandfather, and then my college lacrosse coaches, uh, Jack Emmer and Richie Mead. So uh, those guys really. That was at a time when I said I thought that the sun rose and set on my backside, and they proved to me that that was not the case very quickly. And uh, and I I didn't realize it at the time. It's like everything else. You when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Well, I don't know if I was ready, but the teachers were right there, and so. I look back on that four year period and understand that not only West Point and everything I learned from being a cadet and all that stuff, but what I learned in the locker room and on the lacrosse field is still to this day the most valuable uh lessons that I've ever learned about, you know, life or being a man. So
0: sorry that was long winded, but no no. no no,
1: this is this is this is you know what? This is your podcast just as much <laughs> as it is ours. <laughs> Before we get any further into uh, West Point. And beyond that, uh, the question that I, is seared in my mind is, did the talents pass down of playing music <laughs> to you from your father?
2: So I'll try to make this not as <laughs> I played trumpet from the fifth to the eighth grade and I was an all county or all state. I can't remember trumpet player. And I, I auditioned for the high school band as an eighth grader. And when the results of the audition came back, I was going to sit first chair, second seat. So that's a pretty good spot, right, as a, as a rising ninth grader. So if you ask me, was I any good or did the, the Gene pass down for me, I would tell you the hard work Gene passed down because I was not gifted. I just practiced and played hard, <laughs> uh, much like with sports. But here's an interesting thing that has guided me now. So I was 14 years old. I'm 45 now. So for 31 years, I've been guided by this experience, and that is simply this. When I went to visit with the band director from the high school, who, by the way, is a good guy, but we didn't see eye to eye on this one. When I went to visit with him and he told me, you're going to be first chair, second seat, congratulations, I asked him, well, when does concert band start? And his response to me was, well, marching band starts August 15th. And I said to him, with all due respect, sir, I don't plan on being in the marching band because I've been playing soccer since I was six years old, and I want to play soccer in high school. And he said to me, if you're not in the marching band, you're not in the band. And I never played my trumpet again. Wow. And so as a coach now, I never, ever, ever force kids to choose a sport over another one or choose a passion over another one, whether it's surfing or skateboarding or art or music or football or basketball versus lacrosse which is the one I coach because first of all kids don't need to choose you have the rest of your life to focus on whatever it is you want to do and so I haven't played since you know I was an eighth grade kid Um, but that has helped again you learn a lot of times Mm -hmm. from what not to do that helped guide me in a big way 31 years
0: ago That's such a shame because you hear so many times about all the great teachers and and mentors and and to hear a story like that where it just, you may have had this great talent as you went on and it was just crushed right at that moment.
2: You know what I look back, and you're right, Jeff, but I look back on that and I think to myself, had I the passion, I would have continued to play, just not in the band. I would have asked my father. my father was a professional trumpet player. Right, he was in a band with eighteen other guys that all played some sort of horn. Right, um, you know I could have continued to play, or I could have picked up the piano. And if you ask me, musical regret is that I never learned how to play the piano. But it just at that point in time, I was a fourteen year old kid, and I was like, okay, you know, close the I you know those little flip latches, close the latches, put it in the closet when I got home. And my dad, ironically, was cool with it because. Uh, still to this day, if you ask me, he was one of the greatest lead trumpet players in the jazz industry for a, few, a you know a handful of years. He would have given it all up to be a professional athlete. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean he he's a Celtics, Red Sox, pay, no offense, Jeff, <laughs> uh, Patriots, <laughs> Bruins guy. You know, so and if he could have given up the the world class horn to be even a college level athlete, he would have done so. But his parents wouldn't let him play sports when he was a kid. Wow. So, yeah for fear that he would lose his front teeth and not be able to play the trumpet. Because hmm. my grandparents bought him a trumpet in like 1957 and spent like 350 bucks on it. And back then, that was a ton of cash. Yeah, yeah. sure. Actually, We're that's still a ton of cash. Like that's, right. <laughs> that's right. And so they said, you are not going to play sports. Because if you do and you lose your front teeth, you know, blah, blah, blah. So he ended up losing one of his front teeth because he ran into a telephone pole in the park once playing pickup ball. Mm. And his whole senior year in high school, he played at New Bedford High School. They made it to, I think, the state championship and lost in the Boston Garden. His parents didn't know he was playing. Wow. It's like a a scene from Hoosiers. (laughs) (laughs) It, It was just fascinating. So my mom and dad, and I always tell people, we got our athletic genes from my mother. My mother was born in 1949. She played tennis, field hockey, and basketball, women's bat Back when you could only take three steps or mm-hmm. dribble three times, my mom was playing back in those days. And she's 5'10". She's a big, you know, tall woman back in the day. And she's the one, when my, when we used to do something stupid, my dad would be like, well, you're not going to play anymore. My mother's like, uh, can I talk to you in the other room? She was always about sports because she knew it would keep us out of trouble, number one. And number two, she was as passionate about sports as my dad was. So, wow. Cat.
0: So you and the family... Uh, got something to remember your mom by? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, we're uh, my for the most part. I'm trying to think. We've pretty much all gotten tattoos of a uh, hummingbird, and some of us either have a purple hib- hibiscus or a purple ribbon. Uh, my mother uh, lost her battle with pancreatic cancer on January 2nd, 2013. Uh, so we're about three and a half years uh, with our first uh, real angel, I guess you could say. Um, and so as a memorial, you know, to my mom, uh, me, my brother, my sisters, my dad, uh, and my nephews and my daughter have all gotten memorial tattoos. Um, and so it's been something that, you know, we, we've done as a family and, and love that we can, you know, take a quick look at a shoulder or a back or a foot and see that tattoo, so it's pretty cool.
0: Does the hummingbird have a special meaning?
2: Yeah, so I'll butcher this, but there's a, I think it's a Chinese story, a parable or, or whatever about Uh, There's a hummingbird uh, laying on the beach, I think it is, and uh, on its back and with his feet in the air. And I think an elephant or or a lion comes up to him and says, you know, hummingbird, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm holding the world up. And the the elephant looks at him and says, you know, you stupid little hummingbird, there's no way you're going to be able to do that. And he goes, well, maybe not by myself, but if we all, you know, come together, we can do our best or something like that. And so, that was shared with us as a family when my mother was battling pancreatic cancer. And again, I butchered the story, but uh, that was shared with us. And so the hummingbird for us and the color purple, which is the color for pancreatic cancer, which also happened to be my mother's favorite color, which we didn't know until we learned about pancreatic cancer. So we've all got some sort of uh, um, reference to purple and we all did something uh, with the hummingbird, except for my daughter who got my grandmother's, si- or my mother's signature uh, as her tattoo. So.
0: Nice. So you mentioned uh, a little while back that you started playing lacrosse. So what got you into lacrosse?
2: Well, my mother wouldn't let me play football. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And now as a pretty big guy, people always assume that I was a football player. I was actually a soccer player from the time I was six. played basketball and baseball and then which is such a sad thing because kids today can't do this. I played everything else under the sun that you could play without parents' supervision and without money and without, you know, we played in the park, we played in the field, we played in the court, you know, military base. You played tackle football in the street if it was raining and it was muddy. Um, You know, we clotheslined each other and then got up and hugged each other or went and had a push-up pop, you know. So um, I tell people all the time, that's why I'm so passionate about this anti-specialization, um, but I ended up getting into lacrosse in all sincerity because I was just fascinated by kids I would see around the neighborhood with these lacrosse sticks. And so I think I was in seventh grade, I used my birthday money and some tip money from the restaurant and I went to the mall and I bought myself a lacrosse stick and then didn't play until the ninth grade. I didn't pick up lacrosse as a real sport until the ninth grade, but I learned how to catch and throw and, and uh, learn a little bit about the rules of the game. But I'll never forget, tryouts freshman year, it was like March 1st of 1986 or something like that, and I went to tryouts, and there was a coach there, and he said, what position do you want to play? And I said, defense. Well, defensemen use long poles, and I only had a midfield pole, and he said, well, you know you have the wrong stick. I looked at him, I said, coach, I can't afford a long pole. The next day, that coach showed up with a long pole gave it to me and I used that pole. They used to bend all the time. It looked like a snake at the mm. time but I used that pole for almost four years. That man's name is Tom Singleton and Tommy and I have remained friends to this day and when people ask me who was your biggest influence, he was the guy from our high school that played Division I lacrosse that I looked up to um, and he's the guy that I wanted to be like even before he gave me that stick but he gave me that stick and that enabled me to play defense and um, from then it was just grit. You know, It was like go and, and play and I was lucky I had some great kids on the team with me some great coaches and, and uh, it's just such a great game you know to me it combines everything it's hockey it's football it's basketball it's soccer you know it, it's it's everything rolled into one um, and I was lucky enough to be you know given those gifts and allowed to play the game so
1: where did that game take you
2: know if I can answer that question yet because it's still taking me places, you know, um, and I, I don't like talking about this kind of stuff, um, you know, because it's, it's, you know, but I was a high school All-American, played as a North-South All-Star, which was a national All-Star game uh, after my senior year in high school, um, was actually a soccer recruit at West Point, and I didn't understand what being a recruit really meant back then, so I got to West Point my plea of the year, my beast barracks, and you have what's called mass athletics where A couple times a week, you go to practice, or you go to intramurals, or you go do something physical. And I was walking down the sidewalk on the plane, which is the parade field, and I saw the sign for lacrosse. And I was like, I'm going to go to the lacrosse line. Um, The soccer coach wasn't all too happy about that, Um, which, in all sincerity, I didn't understand what I was doing. But I knew that I had fallen in love with lacrosse and had such a great senior year that that's what I wanted to do. And I was also 6'2", and 180 pounds, and that's a big soccer player, so I knew that that may be a limit on me um it's it was, like the Dirk
1: Nowitzki of soccer yeah right
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah I was a big boy, you know? and and then you know I walked on uh, preferred walk on whatever you want to call it made the team as a plea made the varsity got a little bit of playing time and then things really opened up for me as a sophomore um and then by the time I was a senior I was a captain of the team and made that north south national all-star game again and our team was uh, uh 12 and 4 and we finished number eight in the country and uh, we lost to North Carolina. I think it was fourteen to five, and they ended up going on and losing in the final to Syracuse by one. Um, and so, th- that's those are all the plaques on the wall thing. Right. But where has lacrosse taken me? Um, some of the greatest friends and what I consider now to be brothers and sisters uh, were introduced to me through the game of lacrosse. Um, and also, as now as an adult and as a father and as a coach. You know, the ability to give back through the game and help develop young men of character, you know, through all the different coaching that I do. And um, that, that's really, you know, where it's taken me. And that's why I can't answer you because I was on the men's national team staff a few years ago as the director of operations, which is a fancy word for the water boy. Um, got to meet a lot of great pro players and, and world-class lacrosse players and coaches um, but it's really the relationships that you know, I look back on at every level, and that to me is the most valuable thing. So the accolades and the plaques and the certificates are cool, but, and they were much more important to me as a young guy than they are to me today. Mm-hmm. Now it's really the ability to pick up the phone and make a phone call to somebody in Seattle who I met through lacrosse and pick up like we never left
1: off. Right. So. One of the things that I don't want to hover over is your, your experience in West Point aside from sports. And and how that transformed you and why West Point and kind of your experience there and and into becoming a man. So if you could talk about that a little bit.
2: West Point taught me that I wasn't all that I thought I was. You know, you go from being the top of the hill in high school to West Point, where you're one of I think we brought in 1450 plebes, my my plebe year. And I quickly realized that there are some unbelievable men and women here and. I'm not as special as I thought I was. I have special, you know, talents and, you know, whatever, attributes, but I am not the cat's ass or the cat's meow. You know, I'm not the bee's knees like I thought I was. You were the cat's ass. (laughs) (laughs) So so that was humility. You know, that was, it was humility. It was realizing that, wow, there's some amazing men and women here, and that means there's some amazing men and women in the army. Um, And then realized that failure was not turmoil. Uh, because the way that 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 institution is structured, you are going to fail. It doesn't matter how often, uh, how deeply, but whether it's academically, athletically, physically, militarily, they are going to test you, and you are going to fail. And um, so that was a big eye-opener to me to realize that, yeah, you could fail and you could struggle, but it was really more or less how you responded to that, how you reacted to that. And I learned the term, uh, no plan survives first contact. You know, so no matter what you think, you went, until you get punched in the mouth, you never know how you're going to respond, and so that was huge for me. Um, on the flip side, realizing that there's really nothing you can't do either, you know. So, and, and not as an individual, but as a team, you know, you get through beast together, you get through academics together, you get through lacrosse together, you get through the IOCT, the obstacle course together. I mean, it was rare that you'd end up going through, you know, one of those things and say, "I did this." That's when I became much less important than we. Um, you know, the we, us, and our, as opposed to me, my, and and I, you know, so that was a big part of the education that I got
0: there. So let me ask you, because I've known you for a while now, and hearing what you're saying, you didn't want to kind of give the title that you had when, with you being an athlete, and, and hearing you speak about you know, these humbling things, what truly reached out to you or inward to you that made you think like that? Because you were saying earlier that you had a chip on your shoulder and kind of through these little things, you changed the way that you were viewing the world or life or, or just the way to act. And to me, there has to be something bigger than that because I know plenty of people who still have that chip on their shoulder or never kind of change their view or or their outlook. So is there something specific that you think that kind of reached inwards to you that, that made you change your view?
2: Yeah, two things. September of 2007, um, and ironically, the owners of the company made my dad do it. You know, we worked together. Um, some people have pointed out the fact that I've only gotten jobs that my family's been given prior to last, but um, in all sincerity, they said to my dad, look, you need to go fire your son, and he's like, well, what, you know, wow. why? And their answer was he's not a cultural fit. Now, that's ironic because of how much emphasis and value I place on culture uh, with everything I do now. Um, but I was fired, and I thought I was, you know, the Teflon Don. I thought I was untouchable, and so that was a huge um, wake-up call for me. At I think I was let's see, oh seven. I was 35, 36 years old. Um, wife, three kids, mortgage, home equity line, debt, cars, you know, all that stuff. So it was like, holy cow. Uh, so that was a big one, and that was a, a, an injection of humility, whether I wanted it or not. And it was, it was important, and. You know, I can look back on it now and realize that that was one of life's greatest blessings was being fired like that and the way that it happened. Um, The second thing was right around that same time, I ended up somebody, and I wish I could remember who, somebody gave me a copy of the book, Season of Life by Jeffrey Marks, M-A-R-X. And it's the story of a guy named Joe Ehrman, E-H-R-M-A-N-N. So I read that book, and it literally changed my life. And the reason it changed my life is because it taught me that being a success in this life comes down to two things. Relationships, the ability to love and be loved, and commitment to a cause greater than self, you know, a transcendent cause. And i would never heard anybody talk about manhood that way, you know. It, and also, and I can't remember if it's exactly worded this way in the book, but it's not about the billfold, the ball field, the boardroom, or the bedroom. It's not about how much money you make. It's not about how great an athlete you are. It's not about how many women you sleep with. It's not about your title at work or the power that you wield and what you do for a living. It comes down to relationships and a cause greater than self. And when I was a young guy, I would have told you that all those four B's were all about what it meant to be a man. And I read that book. and. You know, I'm one of those guys oftentimes reads a book and, and it's like, I didn't even read it. It's like, do you hear Jimmy? Are you listening to Jimmy? You know, that's. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know, if I heard it, you know, but for whatever reason, I read that book and it literally resonated with me and it changed my life. And it was right about the same time that I started coaching high school across as well. And so it was kind of the perfect storm for me of, you know, what does it mean to be a man? Because. If you use those four B's, you can always compare yourself out. There's always going to be somebody out there who is either richer or more powerful or bigger title or more money or whatever. And it it made me realize it's really not about that. It's about the ability to love and be loved um, and commitment to a cause greater than self. And so those would be probably the two biggest influences on getting that chip knocked off my shoulder. Thank
1: you. When you started coaching and you read this book. And you started to try to implement perhaps some of what you learned from the book into your coaching style and working with athletes. How much pushback did you get on that from others?
2: Believe it or not, not as much as I thought I was going to get. And here's the interesting part about that. When you look at a kid on the field and you say to him in front of the rest of the team, you know, Chris, I love you. I'm proud of you. Nobody said that to me in 1979 or 1982 or 1987, even in college. And you know, told me they loved me, you know, but I was...
1: I mean, I rarely got that from my pops. <laughs> but in all honesty... Yeah, I mean, men, men don't do that, right?
2: We don't show our emotions. We don't, you know... I, I just uh, watched a documentary the other day. It's called In a Perfect World. Mm-hmm. And you know Damon Dash, the founder mm-hmm. of Rockefeller Records?
1: He talks about... Look at Adam with the Rockefeller reference. reference. <laughs>
2: He talks about how he took his ex-wife to court to get custody of their kids. And he said that was one of his greatest regrets. And the reason for that is he realizes that you need the influence of a woman if you're going to be a great man. And so what we were taught, what I was taught, I shouldn't say what what we were taught, or what I was taught when I was younger was you suppress all of that. You don't talk about loving somebody. You don't show your emotions. You're not willing to be vulnerable. You don't love and be loved. You know, you're Mr. Tough Guy. You lift weights, you make money, blah, blah, blah. And so I thought that I was going to get a lot of pushback from the parents. Um, And and I won't name him here because I I don't know that he'd feel comfortable with this, but there were a couple parents in particular at that time when I was coaching in that high school that not only completely got it, but they were right there with me. And the head coach at the time was also a big fan. He read the book and he's like, and he struggled with it. He, He was also, you know, tough upbringing, the whole nine yards, but... What ended up happening was we got champions that were willing to buy into this. And so, you know, now if you go to some of the high schools here, when they break the huddle, they'll say, you know, you one, two, three, and then you say what you're gonna say. Uh, To this day, a couple of the high schools locally will break the huddle on love. So on three love, one, two, three love. And so we talk to the kids about what it really means to be a man has more to do with their athletic prowess and their ability to score goals or, you know, whatever.
1: And with the coaches that you've been around, uh throughout your experience as an athlete um and coming into that as a brand new coach what was the coaching environment like
2: um you know it varied throughout um you know i had four lacrosse coaches in four years of high school lacrosse i had three soccer coaches in four years of high school soccer so i didn't get that consistency you know in the high school i went to our high school had a lot of military kids there were three um Uh, subsidized housing projects right outside the gates and so we we weren't you know we didn't have travel ball and the latest equipment and you know we also had a lot of kids like I think my high school started with somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 kids in my class we graduated 360 because there were a lot of dropouts Um, a lot of kids moved you know with the military Um, so I didn't have that consistency like I always used to have a a chip on my shoulder Mm -hmm. again with the kids that I would hear that would come from the great high school programs right you may know the name Ward Melville, you know, their lacrosse program, or Shoreham Waiting River, which just had an amazing coach retire, or actually uh, leave a, a year or two ago. And you hear the stories about how these guys, you know, would, would influence hundreds and hundreds of kids. Well, I didn't have that consistency, so I had a lot of different personalities that we had to get used to every season. Uh, but a couple, you know, spring to mind, and more that the, the biggest thing I learned from them was just work ethic, you know, just, just work ethic. and you I jokingly tell people, no matter whether I have a job or not, that I go to work every day unemployed. And, you know, people are look at me and say, wait, well, you have a job. What, what does that mean? I'm like, until I go do something, until I go accomplish something, I'm unemployed. I haven't earned my paycheck today unless I walk into the door or walk into the client and earn, you know, do, produce what I'm supposed to produce. And so that came from those coaches early on, Because, you know, with sports, it's an uneven playing field based on genetics and in some cases money. But more often than not, yeah, I mean, it really is. But more often than not, if you have the right attitude and you're willing to go, you know, fill a role and be part of a team, there's always a spot for guys like that.
0: So with the way that you're coaching and you have been coaching compared to, let's say, coaches throughout your life, coaches throughout my life, that was just work harder, work harder, work harder, practice more, practice more, practice more. There was nothing personal involved whatsoever. How did the young men that you're coaching react to the way that you were coaching? Was there any kind of like stepping back? Was there, did they buy in right away? You know, and, and did they realize what you were trying to do instead of just being a normal coach?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, so, so I'll answer that question like a politician, right? You'd have to ask them. Because I don't know. You know I, I think you know, some of them hated it. And probably me you know um, some of them think it's a bunch of BS which means they think I you know I'm selling them BS others maybe it changed their life like it changed my life I got a Facebook message a handful of years ago from a kid who I never saw eye-to-eye with as a player Um, and he never saw eye-to-eye with me I mean I, I was not his kind of coach and he was not my kind of player and he also was struggling through some personal issues that we tried to help him with. And one of the other coaches was much more personally vested in this kid because he had known him for more years and they connected. Um, but the long and short of it was, in, it's a stupid rule, but in the state of Florida, you're only allowed to bring 25 kids into the playoffs, even if you have 35 kids in the roster. Well, this kid was a senior and we're only allowed to bring 25 kids and we didn't bring him. And it wasn't because he wasn't talented as a player, it was because it just you know, I was not buying into being a teammate, right? So a couple of years later, I get a friend request on Facebook from this kid. And I'm thinking to myself, well, oh, here we go. You know, if I accept this friend request, the next thing I get is going to be filled with expletives and accusations and, and hatred, right? But I did it anyway because, you know, again, you, you got to have be vulnerable if you want to be courageous. So I, I accepted the friend request. The next thing you know, the messenger thing pops up, right? And it basically said, Coach, I just want to thank you for teaching me or trying to teach me all the things you taught me when I was at the high school. And then it went on to say the things that you tried to teach us and the things that you told us about how to treat women, I'm starting to see why you were saying the things you were saying because now the kid's going to frat parties, sorority parties. He's at a big university. He's seeing some of the stuff that's going on with drugs and alcohol and the way guys are treating girls and all that stuff. And so here I am fearful of accepting a friend request, thinking I'm going to get, you know, vilified only to then literally get the greatest message I've ever received as a coach. I would trade 10 state championships for that one message to to understand that a kid that I didn't communicate well with was actually listening and hearing. And now, you know, that's changed his life. So now do I think he's the the majority or the norm? I don't know. I really don't know. Those kids may not because I can tell you this. I've often, I used to complain about not having great mentors in my life, but 10 years later I realized that I had a life filled with mentors, I just wasn't buying what they were selling. So, you know, and I was told once, just because your kid doesn't listen to you doesn't mean you don't, you stop parenting, right? Same thing with coaches and players, just because you don't think they're listening doesn't mean you give up on them. You just keep trying to get that message across, and whether it's one day or 50
1: years, it, it hopefully will eventually sink in, so... So the four-letter word, let's keep it clean here, guys, <laughs> that you have tattooed on your body. Talk to us about that word and why, it's, why it means so much to you and why pretty much every time you speak or that I hear you speak, um, that word comes up.
2: center of my back and I put it there um, because the word love is something I didn't really understand up until I read that book and when you would talk about again a transcendent cause and the ability to love and be loved it's not in the physical form it's in the the emotional form and you know talking about my children and my wife um, you know, we have a saying, which again, uh, when I say we have a saying, it just may, may mean that me have a saying. <laughs> <laughs> but, You know, me love without limits or expectations, meaning, you know, I, I often hear marriage is a 50-50 equation. And I think that that's ridiculous. It's a 100-100 equation. So if I'm able to go into whatever relationship it is, whether it's being a husband, a son, a father, a brother, uh, a teammate, an employee, a coach, and I can just love the people that I'm with without limits meaning I'm willing to continue to give even if I don't think that they're receiving it or without expectation of return, really. Um, That's a very difficult thing to do. You know, to love without limits or expectations and to continue to do it over and over and over again, that's a difficult thing to do. But that's what I feel is really the key. Um, You talk about success, commitment to a cause greater than self, the ability to love and be loved. So it's important to me. And it's, again, something I had no concept of, you know, no concept of when I was younger because I was self-centered and arrogant, you know, which is how we started this conversation. you know. So love is not about me. It's about the person that I'm with. And there's a guy locally who I met about 11 years ago who threw out a term or a saying that I just absolutely love. And it's kind of, a, 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 I guess, a take on what Kennedy said in Germany. What, what's in it from me as opposed to what's in it for me? And we live in a society where more often than not, people go into situations, whether it's a relationship, a marriage, a job, whatever and the thought is what's in it for me and you know if you take it and flip it the other way around and think what's in it from me man the world just changes and I think that that is love personified so yeah, and there's all kind of references to you know biblically to love faith hope and love the greatest of which is love Um, but it's hard and so for I don't want to sound like a preacher here because I fail to love more often than I am successful loving Um, but it's a constant struggle and you know that's why that, that that's why that word is tattooed on my back
1: so if you were to surround that tattoo with a few other meaningful words or words that you think um feed into that what would those words be
2: uh integrity is the first you know or honor depending on i mean that's you know, west point duty honor country um integrity you know it, it's i'm not perfect and i've made you know a, a, an infinite number of mistakes but I haven't compromised my integrity in an awfully long time and I haven't compromised my honor in an awfully long time. Um, and I'm sure that there are people that have gone on the other side of negotiations or business situations or relationships that would say that that's, you know, what I just said was untrue, but that's something that you ask me right after love, what's the most important thing to me? And it's, it's the truth and it's integrity and honor. Um, And, you know, I'd like to say something like selfless service, but the reality is, again, when you talk about failures, day-to-day failures, I'm not as as selfless as I wish I was, you know? So that's a constant, you know, struggle or effort, you know, commitment to just try to do something for others, what's in it from me as opposed to what's in it for me.
0: So you have children of your own. Um, Obviously, you don't have other people's children, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But... So your beliefs and what you just spoke about honor and integrity and being truthful. Do you, I'm a parent myself. I have two girls, 15 and 12. And just now I'm realizing my older one is starting to get it. You know, certain things that I've been trying to teach them and, um, how they should be and how they should act and how they should treat people and and all that whole bit um do you find it hard as a father or do your kids like get it or is it where you have to kind of not beat it into them physically but just repeating and teaching and
2: I said love without limits or expectations, and then I will tell you that I'm going to contradict that right now by telling you that the expectations that we've had for our children are impossibly high. And I don't know sometimes if I'd want to be my kid Um, because, you know, in my house, a half-truth is a whole lie. You know, the standards by which we raise our children are not society standards. They're not cultural standards. You know, they're not social media standards they're not you know this this, we raise our children um, the way that we were raised and my mother taught me early on don't come to me and complain about the teacher she owns the classroom you're just renting a seat you know so don't come in here and tell me about all the things that the adult did wrong come in here and tell me how you're going to fix the problem by doing the next right thing and so that's how we've you know raised our kids and you know, there are consequences, and I tell my kids all the time, every decision has a consequence, both good or, you know, some good, some bad. Um, you got to hopefully choose more that have good consequences. Um, but we've been very tough on our kids, and part of the reason for that is, to he who is given much, much is expected. And so our kids have been blessed with way more than my wife and I ever had. And so with that said, there's a corresponding expectation that you're going to conduct yourself a certain way. There's a zero-tolerance policy in our house for drugs, um, you know, we expect that our boys respect their girlfriends and their mother um, and that our daughter respects herself and her mother and father and her boyfriend you know, all that stuff. And so it's tough. I mean, it's tough being, you know, again, and our kids have been, you know, raised in a very sheltered environment in a lot of ways. But when they walk into our home, they understand that there are expectations and there are standards of decorum and conduct. You know, with that said, my kids aren't saints and their parents aren't perfect. You know, so life is about, you know, learning and growing. And, and I'd like to think that they eventually hear what we say, but they probably think, you know, you can't be a prophet in your own backyard, right? So my kids will probably think I'm a genius when they have kids of their own. Uh, until then, you know, we'll figure it out. And I'll continue to expect that they conduct themselves a certain way. So.
0: And I think it's always as we get older because I remember years ago of my father, quote unquote, lecturing me or, or giving me advice. And he, would, ago, he would just, yeah. it was yesterday. So, but I remember at the time being a teenager, like, just shut up, you know, please, you know. And we didn't have a good relationship. But now that I'm older, I'm like, okay, maybe when I turned like mid-20s, I started realizing like, okay, you know, he had my best interest in mind with this, and now I understand that, you know. And so I think it's when, with some children, when they get older, that they're like, okay, I get it now.
2: Well, let me also say this, and I probably should have started my last answer by saying this. I've been blessed with great kids. You know, you, know, you look at some of the greatest coaches in the history of sport, and the reason that they were the greatest coaches in the history of sport is because they more often than not coach the greatest players in the history of sport. Um, I've been given, you know, God has blessed my wife and I with three amazing children. Um, but they're children, you know, that's the other thing. I'm, you know, I'm not the father who's buddies with his sons or his daughter. I love them. There will come a day where we'll speak as equals, but that day has not come, you know, and, and then there will be a day where I'll probably be going to them for advice, but right now they're children and I treat them as children. And I give them restrictions, as children should have, and, and limits. And you know, But with that said, I've got three amazing kids. Not perfect, they're not without mistakes, but either are their parents. And so, it, uh, but again, we've, we've been blessed beyond measure with our kids.
1: Now you say three amazing kids. Three. Where's one of them right now?
2: Yeah, I, I, hope, <laughs> I, hope, I hope none of these my, my oldest son uh, is, a, is a new cadet at West Point going through his second or third week at Beast Barracks. Uh, he went to the prep school last year. as a lacrosse player there, and uh, he's neck deep in it right now. So uh, his mother and I are very proud of him. We've challenged his decision every step along the way to make sure that he's doing it for himself and not for mom and dad because both Jen and I went and graduated from West Point, and her father graduated from West Point, class of 69. He was a two-sport athlete, Jen was an amazing volleyball player, you know, and Miles has decided to follow my footsteps and play lacrosse, so we've, we've challenged him to make sure um, you know, that this is what he wants to do. And what's what's been amazing about watching his journey so far is that he's made the conscious decision to go to West Point, even though he knows full well the prices that some of our wounded, injured, and killed in action have paid, because he's been exposed to that for the better part of the last decade. And... Like every other kid after 9-11 who's chosen to go into the military or go to one of the academies, uh, he's done so with his eyes wide open. You know, he was uh, four years old uh, when those cowards hit the towers uh, and that field and the Pentagon, and he's made the conscious decision to serve his country in a time of war. And, you know, I don't know what the future holds for my son, but I know this. He's earned my respect more than he probably knows because he's made that decision just like every other kid who's put
0: their right hand in the air and sworn an oath to the country, so. So as a father, I'm sure it was a rush of emotions going through you when here it is, your oldest is now um, going to school yeah. and dropping him off, and what was exactly going through your head?
2: So the week before he left.
0: And how many buckets did you need? Yeah, right. <laughs>
2: Uh, how many how uh, tissues can you go through? How many the week before he left, and I'm paraphrasing, but I think I looked at him in the eye on the back porch one night and said, "It's time for you to go." <laughs> I'm like, "You're 18, and I'm like 44, and it's you know, this house is not very big. It's time for you to go." Um, and, and I kept telling Jen, I, I was joking with her. I'm like, you know, when he leaves, you know, you're going to be the emotional one and it's going to hit you hard. You know, you're the mom and he's your first boy. you know, all that stuff. It hit me like a ton of bricks. It hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, when you report to the prep school or West Point, they give you anywhere from 60 to 90 seconds. I think last year it was 90 for whatever reason. This year it's 60 seconds to say goodbye to your son or daughter. And they're not kidding. And I did it, but being a father and watching him do it, you know, and he looks to me, you know, his mother and his brother and sister gives them the hugs and, and then he kind of looks to me and you do everything you can not to break it, you know, not to fall apart. Last year when we dropped him off, I ended up going out onto the balcony at Eisenhower Hall and crying like a baby. This year was a little bit different because the prep school year is a prep school year for the kid or for the cadet and the parent. So it wasn't as emotionally driven, but watching him go through that process, because I didn't go to the prep school, but I went to West Point. So watching him go through that process was also, you know, brings you right back down to earth. Um, but you know, again, it's, I couldn't be more proud and, um, and he'll, he's going to find his way and he's going to learn a lot of the things I learned about how you're not as special as you think you are, but you can do anything you put your mind to with the right people on your team and, uh, failure is not terminal. And you know, so I'm, I'm really excited for him.
1: Jeff, I feel like we could have a three-parter here. Like, we want to have you back for sure. Um, and we don't want to take up too much of your time tonight, but we have some questions. We want to have like a, a, a like a rapid fire question round with you. Um, and I also want to know what you think um, right now, the future holds for you. Like what big ideas are in your brain? What do you want to, where, where do you see yourself maybe as a coach or um like, are there any ideas going through your brain that you like you want to make happen to deliver an impact? Before we get there. Okay. Well, I let I let that marinate. I yeah. will let that marinate. I <laughs> <laughs> let that marinate. But uh Jeff, we gotta, we we want to do something new, right? Yep. You, why are you looking at me like that, Jeff?
0: Yes, I agree.
1: No, you, you you're looking at me a some kind of way. Go ahead. I'm going to give you the mic. Say what you want to say.
0: It- It could be many different things going on here, you know?
1: Jeff, I don't want to leave just as much as you don't
0: want to leave, brother. But we can't not keep him here all night. Well, we could. We could. We'll shut this off, tie him up, and can't go nowhere. You do Jen (laughs) a (laughs) favor. So, there is a questionnaire. Uh, There's a show on Bravo TV. You know, we're looking for those advertising dollars. Uh, (laughs) called uh it was
1: also a, a Hispanic um a Latino food chain. Really? Grocers. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Nice. Uh <laughs> inside the Actor's Studio hosted by James Lipton, uh I'll have to check out the Bravo store chain. <laughs> um so there's a question that he does at the end that I've always loved because uh they're kind of little simple questions but they're obscure just to hear what the responses are. So uh, like Yeah was saying, I'll just start firing out some questions. If you don't mind and if you want to answer, if you want to expand on the answer, feel free. It doesn't have to be like a little one-word answer. So uh, what is your favorite word?
2: Hmm. My favorite word? I, I, I want to like, you know, be the corny answer and say love because we already talked about that. Okay. Uh, that would be a good one. Um, I think it's my probably honor.
0: Okay. Yeah. What is your least favorite word?
2: So my wife and my kid, it drives them nuts, but it's I hate abbreviations. So I don't like mac and cheese. I don't like veggies. I don't like PJs. And as an IT guy, you're going to love this. I hate apps. Nice. Bay. Yeah, bay. Bay. I sent, my <laughs> leases, I sent my leases a text today. Like there are, I think, 11 and 9. And I, I put a, a line from one of, uh, I was going to say, Believer. I put a line from Justin Bieber. And then I, I quoted it, and at the end, I was like, I'm a Believer. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah, like, I have any idea what that means. Uh,
0: bay. One that got me years, uh, a year or so ago was Nah did your kids ever say that one mm-hmm. no. so it's kind of or not but they would say or nah yeah that drove <laughs> drove me up a wall boo used to be one of my least favorites. nice oh. <laughs> oh, my uh, what turns you on creatively spiritually or emotionally i'm glad you completed that <laughs> yes you paused you, at a very, and your uh, eyes lit, lit up yes <laughs>
2: Say that again. Creatively.
0: What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally?
2: Oh, man. I, you know, I think when when you start to see kids get it, whether they're my kids at home and I, you know, my, my daughter stood up to a kid, a big, strong, scary kid, uh, at, at, a, at a, a sporting event because he was using the N-word. mm and my daughter stood up to him and challenged him. And I found that story out uh, after the fact. And I was very proud of my daughter. My oldest son at one point stood up when he was only a sophomore, stood up for a kid who was slightly learning disabled in his high school because there were guys that were teasing him all the time. Um, that to me is, you know, and I take no credit for that. That's, that's where, nor does my wife. I mean, when you, when you, that's why I say we're blessed, right. with great kids. When you see that kind of stuff happening with your own children, I mean, that's off the charts. Um, my nephews got heavy into the church and have gone on mission trips in their late teens. And I've, I've seen their testimony, and I've seen them speak on camera about the effect that God has had on them, the church has had on them. And that's just phenomenal. And then as a coach, when you see the kids get what you're trying to teach them, whether it's on the field or off the field, a young kid here who's on one of our, our youth teams who... We're trying to put in these principles, these X's and O's principles. And I'm on the sideline during a tournament a week and a half ago. And I look up and I see him with his his, uh, lacrosse stick out poking one of his teammates in the back saying, you're the guy, you're the guy. And he's coaching on the field. And that's when you stop and you're like, you know, that's a walk off, right? Right. Because as a coach or a parent or or as as an employer or employee, whatever, when it starts to get there and when you start to see that, that just drives you. It's like golf. The one good shot keeps you coming back, even though the other ninety-nine may not be so great. Right. When you start to see those types of things unfolding, you know that—that's what really gets me going.
0: Nice. Uh, what? What turns you off?
2: Well, I mentioned earlier that a, a half truth is a whole lie, uh, manipulation of the truth. Um, you know, false witness which I you know, put right up there with cowardice. Um, so so that's, that's tough. And especially when you're trying to teach your children and your players to live an honorable life. I didn't say a perfect life. I didn't say a mistake-free life. I didn't say a, mis- a life that is out without the need to make an amends, but an honorable life and a truthful life. And when that is not the cultural standard anymore, that's tough. You know, that's tough. And, you know, some people have said to me, well, that must be the West Point in you You know, duty on a country. A cadet will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. Yeah, that was part of it. But that goes back to vavu, You know, that goes back to vovaw. You know, that goes back to, you know, my father and my mother. And, you know, we just, we just don't tolerate that. Again, you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to like me. You don't have to respect me. But lying, cheating, and stealing, compromising, integrity, manipulation, that's the stuff that really i I just struggle with just flat out struggle with so and as i said you know my mother taught me it's not the teacher's fault you know we're not all victims in this world you know we're not all victims and and so those are some of the things that that just kind of drive me look in the mirror yeah yeah uh
0: what sound or noise do you love Jason what? what? What happened? Yeah, yeah, did you have something to say?
1: Yeah, yeah, Jeff Like, listen. Like don't Okay. Listen, Adam. We've gone this entire podcast clean, right? Yep. Clean, right? Um, no e
0: edit.
1: No no explicit. no no bleeps, no no special sound effects for any of the words that we've chosen to speak today. However, you just hovered over a question that I think is very important.
0: I didn't hover. I just jumped You skipped it. Hover. You skipped it, brother. <laughs> you skipped I it. Right by it. I didn't see. Anything.
2: I'll answer the question. Will you answer the question? I know what the question is. And I'm not proud to say it, but it's the F word. So move on. Okay.
1: That, that w- People, you know what he's talking about.
0: It was The question was, do you think Yadier is handsome? <laughs> <skipped>.
1: Fine. Fine. <laughs> fine. He's so fine. <laughs>
0: Uh, so you, well, I, you, what?
2: So <laughs> no. He, he got me
0: over here. What that's sound? <laughs> what sound or noise do you love?
2: Well, now it's, this sounds like a, a dating site, right? So, okay. <laughs> Jen's going to be like, you're an idiot. She, that's her favorite response to me. <laughs> um, I love the sound of rain. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good one. And you know, being in the South, you hear rain on a tin roof, you know, every once in a while. But is that a lyric to a song? I'm sure it is. <laughs> yeah, some blues song. Right? <laughs> um, I don't know if this is a sound like that this is what the answer you were looking for. But you know, Ray Charles. Yep. He made famous this, the tune Georgia. My father plays Georgia on or played on his trumpet and there are days where i have to skip the song because it still to this day moves me to tears so whether that's the answer or what sound but my father playing the trumpet specifically georgia which was my great grandmother's favorite song and then knowing that it came from ray charles is really i mean that, that's one of those things that it's hard for me to i have to be in the right frame of mind to listen to be able to, to listen to it tune, right or it's going to knock me on my uh, you know off my chair so
0: nothing wrong with that no e I'm what <laughs> <laughs> what sound or n- noise do you hate Doing with the mouth open Ugh. high five uh,
2: uh, the popping of the gum with the mouth open um clipping nails in a public place that's what bathrooms are yeah oh, you know so those are the, the right right at the top those three i would say Oh. There's there's some sort of probably disorder term for those. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
2: Oh boy. That's a good one. Um, you'll probably um, because if I if I answer this and, and then you'd be like, you will be kicking me on the rear end for the next ten years. Don't ask me why I haven't, you know. That's like one of my buddies, Brad, said to me, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Um, so then if you answer that question, you have no excuse but to go for it. Right, right. right. Um, executive coach. Um, because I love coaching, um, and I love coaching the kids and the college players that I've been blessed enough to, to be in front of. Um, but I also find myself absolutely enamored with trying to help people through difficult, Situations at work, um, and not because I like solving their problems, but because I like working through them, you know, with them. Um, and I, I'm not the, you know, to me, there's not an exercise or a game for every, you know, professional situation. It's more or less just communicate, communicate, communicate. Right. You know? um, so I would have to say, executive coach would probably be right up there.
0: I think you'd be amazing at that, by the way.
2: I think maybe I'm a little too heavy to be a ballet dancer. That's why I
0: answered that. <laughs> <laughs> what? He was plie-ing all over the place earlier. He
1: used to play soccer. I already knew he, could, he had to fit in the
0: footwork. Nice. 120 pounds ago. <laughs> <laughs> what profession would you not like to do?
2: So this is an interesting answer at a very interesting time. Um, I don't think I would want to do three professions that I have the utmost respect for and that I'm personally connected to and that is, as I said earlier, cop, teacher, nurse. Because I just don't envy what they deal with every day, day in and day out. You know, we talked about your wife's, you know, role in hospice and those people to me are angels on earth. Right. You know, we tend to hear most of the negative about what happens, you know, from you know, the men and women in blue and yet we don't hear the 99.9% of life saving work that they do. Um, what my sister deals with is an elementary school teacher. I just, it's amazing to me because it seems like we expect the most from those we respect the least sometimes. And I, I would have to say that those three professions, because I know a little bit about them, um, are the three that I just don't think that I could do. And I also don't know that I have the temperament to do them. So we talked earlier about you know commitment to a cause greater than self, what's in it from me, and love without limits and expectations. Those are all great taglines, but when you actually have to go out and put it into practice with what you do eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, it's a whole different story. And so I listen to what my brother and sisters tell me about what they do at work every day. And, oh, by the way, my sister-in-law is a nurse and my brother-in-law is a homicide detective. And I'm continually floored at what we expect of our teachers, cops, and nurses. And I just don't think I can do that.
0: Okay. Last question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Okay.
2: Because I failed to believe that my mother's gone. Um, And you say St. Peter? Is that who who you asked me?
0: If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say?
2: Okay. Because I thought we were at the pearly gates here with with Peter. Um, Welcome. I hope, if not already, I I hope, well, some would say you can't earn this, right? Because it's agape. It's, you know. The love of God you can't earn because nobody is good enough to earn it. And that's why Jesus died on the cross, right? So I would hope that all he would say is welcome, you know. And then quickly, hey, your mom's right over there. Your Vavu and your grandpa are over there. Your Nana and Vavar are over there, you know, and and just be able to go hang out with with my mom and, and the rest of the family.
0: Nice, brother. Thank you. I think it's time for
1: something. I think it's time for a snack. No, it's not time. Oh, you, we do have, we had some cheese and salami over here. I, and cheeses. You you did it up nicely. I appreciate that, brother. There's a lot there, though, man. We can't eat all of that. So, we got two segments coming up, Adam. All right. The first one is the... Because we don't have a soundboard to do sound ha, <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs>
1: ha the beast mode moment now bear in mind that this entire episode has been like an entire just episode full of beast mode moments i
0: agree
1: i absolutely agree but this one so in the in the years that i've known you um and in the years that i've been uh had the opportunity to be surrounded by several of the individuals that i'm surrounded with uh now probably in around the past decade or so i've learned a lot about leadership or at least i think that i've learned a lot about leadership and one of the things that um stands out to me with the people that i'm surrounded by now is that great leaders can be and are great friends but know the difference so that is what uh stands out to me in the conversation that we've had with you and in our relationship um is that you are a great leader in my opinion and you are also a great friend and you know the difference so that jeff is the beast mode moment short and simple nice yeah To to the point now the next segment that we have adam now did you want to comment do you want to comment on that beast moment at all no
2: other than to tell you that that's a, that's one of the great challenges of being a leader or a manager um, is that you got to put the mission first and, and that is a constant source of challenge and struggle and difficulty you know mm-hmm. over my what 20 some years as a business guy leadership whatever you want to call a coach you have to make tough calls mm-hmm. and they suck and again it all goes back to communication because if you're willing to be transparent and, and you know clear about your reasoning behind it it helps a lot but it still hurts sometimes so yeah, that tough. It's, it's a big it's a big challenge mm-hmm. ongoing challenge
1: jeff are you ready are you queued up my brother i am for once fully ready we like to call this jeff's joint
0: That was some of the worst sound quality <laughs> in forever. But the song was a little help from my friends by Joe Cocker. Uh, when, when I think of Adam, and like Ye said, uh, an amazing leader, Um, I think of all the help that you have given people and been there for people. And, uh, I think probably there is a ton of good that you have done without even knowing that you have done it. Um, it is beyond, um, the norm from what I've seen growing up and uh working at different places with different leadership. And uh I think that many people have gotten by with a little help from you, so that's why I chose that song, brother.
2: Thank you. Joe Cocker, God rest his soul. That guy's unbelievable. Thank you, thank you.
1: What what's playing in your vehicle right now? What are you listening to?
2: Jay Blige is never far. <laughs> um, I listen to everything. I, you know, again, with my dad being a musician, and he played with a lot of the Motown acts when they came through Baltimore and D.C. Um, so I listen to everything. I got a little whiskey in the jar by Metallica going on. You know, Joe Cocker's on there. Um, Jill Scott. Jill Scott. She's,
1: she's all right. Um, so you got again, me at Jill. It's, 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 <laughs> <laughs> my life like, so, Adam, when we wrap up, we like to um, leave the episode with, with some takeaways. Um, so one or two takeaways from the conversation that we've had here today that you want to leave the Beauty and the Beast mode listeners with. Well,
2: I, as I mentioned to you guys earlier, I, I, I almost, almost called and said I couldn't make it because I'm not real comfortable talking about me because um, I consider myself a flawed man and a leader in the making, but when I hear people talk about leadership and management, I I don't come to my mind, um, because to me, it's just a constant evolution and a constant struggle to just try to be a better person and a better man. You asked the question, Jay, before we get into the rapid fire round about what's the future, you know, what's next or what's coming, Um, and, you know, I know people say, well, if you you fail to plan, you plan to fail, and, you know, where are you going to be in five years, and it's that interview question, and you know what, I don't know. And I don't have a plan, um, other than that I want to try to be better tomorrow than I I am today. And I know that sounds corny, you know, it sounds rehearsed, it it sounds rote, it's the truth. I mean, I I just, I want to honor my wife and my children better tomorrow or more effectively tomorrow than I did today. You know, I want to honor the memory of my mother better tomorrow than I did today. Um, And that's really all it comes down to. Marla asked me a couple weeks ago to write something for a blog that she does. Um, And it was something about, you know, your professional progression or, or, you know, I'm like, man, I've made every dumb decision you could possibly make. I mean, I have not followed the path. I haven't checked the boxes. She's like, well, you know, kind of what was it? And I was like, I made decisions based on what I thought was best for my family at the time. That's it. That's the sum total of my, you know, 30 year plan. Um, And now I've taken an even, you know. Shorter than that. Shorter term is what can I do to be a better guy tomorrow, Um, and specifically, you know, to Jen and the kids, and then my extended family and friends after that. But and that's it, man. That's really all it is.
1: Jeff, I feel like if this were an entire bucket of chicken, (laughs) that (laughs) crispy, crispy. I'm I'm all extra crispy. This chicken little that's like a throwback reference, yes, chicken littles. Yes, One of
2: my teammates in high school worked at the KFC. <laughs> yes, sir.
1: I feel like this we've only started to chew on the drumstick or the wing. Like we have not even begin begun to dive in as deep as we've wanted to in this episode with Adam.
0: We definitely uh, have to have you back.
1: So, will you come back? Uh, yeah, sure. It's on wax now. You, yeah, it's on you wax now. You <laughs> Absolutely. I can come back and you can tell me
2: uh, all the things that I said that are foolish. <laughs> 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 the
1: e- the <laughs> Absolutely. Um, this is this has been a lot of fun for me personally. Um, I, I've, I've, man, every time I listen to you talk, I learn. Um, so, I, I appreciate you being here. Takeaways for me were. Uh, when you were talking about parenting um uh i have a she's almost 16 year old daughter in august um and i know that i have a, a a lot of growth um as a parent she lives in chicago i live here in florida so that makes things a little more difficult for us but um just hearing you talk about parenting um was important to me um and very much like the way that my parents raised us uh, so i appreciated that And, um, you know, hearing you talk about coaching and listening to the scenario where the athlete reached back out to you and said, hey, you impacted me. This was helpful, even though you thought that I wasn't listening, perhaps I was listening. Um, So just knowing that people are listening. And you just have to keep beating the drum.
0: My takeaway is... So many people I've spoken to about Adam throughout my time knowing him, and I've always said that I could listen to him talk every single day for hours. uh, Because... (laughs) Because, as I said earlier, you do not beat around the bush. You do not lie. You're honest. You're you know you you speak what you feel, um, and I absolutely respect that. And so, hearing even more today, uh, which thank you for sharing, um, I take away you know. Be a little more humble every day and love a little stronger, so that's what I got
1: that's what you got well uh Adam, we love you, I love you um, thank you for being here. We want you back for sure um, we'll just wrap we'll wrap this salami and cheese up and we'll have it for you next time. But,
0: who's a hmm nice.
2: nice right do you know
1: I, d- I did not know
2: much like this entire podcast i could be lying to you <laughs> <laughs> so to-
1: we don't know cuz we don't <laughs> fact check Listen, we wouldn't know take
0: back my 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 takeaway
1: <laughs> well while you're looking that up, up. baby come back mm. Na, 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 na. That's when that's called Chevy Chasing when you don't know the words to the song. Because <laughs> nice. just...
2: yeah, nice. I have that on hits of the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> My music. My music. <laughs>
1: well, Adam, we greatly appreciate you. This has been an episode, Unknown Number, of Beauty in the Beast Mode. For Adam Silva,
0: I am yayay Martinez. I am Big Jeff. Be good to one another. Peace. See
1: you.